from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On today's show, the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities recently awarded Professor Nick Mueller with the Champion of Culture Award. The president and CEO emeritus of the National World War II Museum tells us more about the honor. Plus, Professor Tony Weiss joins us to share the economic benefits of Mardi Gras. But first... Governor Jeff Landry's been in office for almost a month now, and the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist, has been covering his transition. Stephanie Grace joins us for more. Steph, thanks for being here. Thank you. So we're learning a lot more about the plans Governor Jeff Landry has in store these days. Where is this information coming from? Yes, there's a lot of new information about coming out about his plans on a kind of a wide range of issue areas. Um, his plans, and I should emphasize possible plans, because we're not sure, you know, exactly how high some of these things are on his priority list. Some of it is coming from the governor directly. So certainly those are the things he's focused on. But a lot of it's coming from the transition council recommendations that are now out. Mm -hmm. These are reports by his kind of handpicked groups of citizens who were asked to advise him on potential policies in different areas. Um and I should say that he he may or he may not pursue the recommendations. He hmm. is no under no obligation to. Okay, so let's get down to some of the major issues. Landry ran a tough-on-crime campaign and plans to call a special legislative session on the subject after Mardi Gras. What are we likely to see? Well, there are a lot of recommendations on this, not surprisingly. The transition group took some of the same, you know, basically the same tough approach that Landry has embraced in its recommendations. It recommended some reversals of policies that ha that generally fall into the category of um, criminal justice reform, mm -hmm. and that in recent years have actually gotten surprisingly broad support from members of both parties. So this is kind of interesting. Um, the recommendations include shifting away from the therapeutic model that's currently being used for juveniles accused of crime, making it harder for offenders to get parole or credit for good behavior, uh, the group has recommended reversing the a law that was passed in 2016 called Raise the Age, which raised the age when kids charged with nonviolent crimes can be treated as adults from 17 to 18. Um, so that's that's going to be a very big issue. And Landry's also been talking about crime a lot. Um, he wants to expand ways for Louisiana to carry out the death penalty. This is actually a longstanding priority for him. The last time Louisiana executed someone was actually 2010, and that's partly because it's difficult to get the drugs they use under current law for injection. Mm -hmm. So he's been talking about um, expanding the methods you could use for executions. Uh, Landry's also talking about his plan to establish a state police division in New Orleans. Uh, and, and this is, in the past, this has happened before, but it's generally been focused on downtown areas and tourist areas. But it sounds like this division might actually have much broader jurisdiction around the city. So details on that to come, and they're kind of highly anticipated. And there were developments on the coastal front as well, correct? Yes, indeed. Um, Landry appointed a man named Gordon Dove to head the state coastal protection authority. He's a former legislator and Terrebonne Parish president, and he's you know well known and well regarded in this field. He's dealt with a lot of coastal land loss issues, being in Terrebonne Parish. Landry said he really wants to emphasize infrastructure measures to protect the coast, you know, more levees, build more, you know, kind of protection and build it more quickly. 
Um, but of course, he also wants to expand oil and gas activity, mm -hmm. and that contributes to the conditions that endanger the coast. So there's a little bit of a contradiction there. Um, we also haven't gotten into how future investments would be paid for because the BP money is going to drop off at some point in the future. Um, his transition council made an interesting recommendation declare that he declare a state of emergency on the coast. So it's not entirely clear what that would mean. But it seems to be aimed at requiring local governments to kind of follow the lead of the state in implementing the Esther plan, because sometimes there have been conflicts. In the minute we have left, what's on the horizon? Well, quite a bit. Um, there is a transition group that recommended that a new state constitution that would allow the legislature to take all sorts of actions. It can't now without voter approval. So things like changing the per pupil funding for education, civil service protections, things like that. Um, there's another group that wants to get rid of the state corporate and personal income taxes. And um, I should say, notably, it did not recommend a way to replace the revenue that would be lost, mm -hmm. which is obviously a huge potential sticking point. Mm -hmm. The Times Picayune, and the Advocates Editorial Director and Columnist, Stephanie Grace. Thanks again for being here. Okay, thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. It began over sherry in the backyard. Nick Mueller was sharing a copita with close friend and colleague Stephen Ambrose when Ambrose proposed that the two collaborate on building a D-Day museum on the campus of the University of New Orleans. It would house Ambrose's 600-plus oral histories and other exhibits to tell the story of those who stormed the beaches of Normandy June 6, 1944. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, leaving Nick Mueller to carry on with the idea which he did to great success. 24 years later, the National World War II Museum is among the top museums in the world that people travel to visit. And now, Professor Mueller has been awarded the Champion of Culture Award by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. And Nick Mueller joins us now. Thank you for being here, Nick. Thank you, Bob. Enjoy uh, being with you. Congratulations on the award. What what does it mean for you? Well, it's uh, quite... Uh... Astonishing makes me feel uh, very good, and and uh, after 50 years of both at higher education for 32 and another 20 at the National World War II Museum, I, I guess uh, some recognition is due. But uh, uh, but I'm uh, a culture maven anyway, as a historian and uh, of intellectual history as well as diplomatic history. So uh, it was very uh, gratifying. I went up about 20 some odd years ago, 25 now, I guess when. Mm -hmm. Steve Ambrose received not this award, but a similar one. The Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities is quite prestigious in the state, and I'm very honored. Many UNO alums speak highly of your work as a history professor. What what drew you to teaching, and, and what do you miss most about it? The teaching <laughs> is what I miss the most. Uh, in fact, uh, I kind of got hijacked by administration because uh, the founding chancellor of the university, Homer Hitt, figured out this uh, young historian uh, knew something about creating programs without any money, which <laughs> is what UNO is known for, I guess. And uh, so that took me out of the classroom. And so I miss that. I miss that greatly. The reading, teaching, contact with the students uh, was the first 11 years of, of my tenure at, at, at UNO was, was, was really was really marvelous. One of your signature efforts at UNO was the study abroad program that you founded. The story goes that 
At one point, you chartered a jet to take over 160 students to Innsbruck. How did that idea come about? Well, uh, of course, uh, there was a little bit of self-serving. I was in European history and I had spent uh, about three years in Europe, both as a teenager and one year, and uh, and then another two years between my master's and PhD at Carolina. So when I got here, I had to find a way to get back to Europe and to have uh, our students uh, have the same kind of intellectual and cultural experience that I had myself. And that really uh, led me to a teaching uh, career in academic life. It was my own experiences at the University of Vienna as an undergrad that uh, that led to that. Chartered a jet in the charter days. I mean, the first uh, few years were all charters. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, 76 and 77, when we shifted from Munich to Innsbruck, it's now going on 45 plus years. And I think it's been an extraordinary program. And we have graduates from this program all over the country. Mm-hmm. Many, many universities send their students. And it's a unique program of its kind. I'm very, very proud of it. It's uh, Innsbruck became almost my second home every summer for many years. And I still run into students all over the city who says, I was there with you. What year? <laughs> oh, because so we start talking about the escapades as well as uh, Mm -hmm. the education of those uh, summers. What do you see as some of the most valuable aspects of studying abroad? Well, there is nothing like, and I learned that by my own experience as a young man and then as when I was in grad school in those two years, there's nothing like the cultural immersion in terms of impacting your life, your mind, uh, your heart, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a totally uh, transformative experience when it's laid over your what you're learning at the same time. So it's a one-two punch of being in the culture and learning about it, whether it's history, economics, political science, drama, theater, the arts, uh, business. It's just everything has a focus that uh, is impossible to replicate uh, in the classroom, even with film and videos and slides and so forth. And and it's way different than uh, whistle-stopping your way through uh, Europe or any country for two or three days at a time. Mm-hmm. It's only when you are there for three, four, six weeks and longer that you really begin to get a sense of another culture and begin to realize that the American way is not the only way, it's just another way. And that opens the mind to uh, many, many new adventures in in learning. We're speaking with Professor Nick Mueller, teacher, administrator, author, founding president and CEO emeritus of the World War II Museum in New Orleans, who was just named a champion of culture by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. As I've just said, you've been a teacher, you've been a dean, administrator, vice chancellor, president and CEO. Were those skills, other than teaching, a blessing and a curse? (laughs) Well, I guess so. Uh, the The blessing was that uh, going back to my earlier years, I was always kind of thought of as an organizer, and I guess I have to confess up to that. And it would have been probably difficult for me to resist where that was driving me because I was always trying to imagine something exciting for myself and for others and then had to figure out if it's that exciting to me and I'm passionate about it and figure out how to do it. So it was a curse in the sense that it, it took me away from friends and, and sometimes from family, and and also it uh, took me away from teaching uh, and, and writing. 
I mean, I've written three or four books now for the museum, uh, but I had a lot, a lot of books I wanted to write as a history professor that I never could get around to. This past fall, you published your latest book, Building the National World War II Museum. What are you trying to say in that book? Well, that one is more of a coffee table book that uh, is really a photographic journey through the from the very beginning uh, at UNO and the research park uh, all the way through uh, the last capstone pavilion that we just opened uh, this past November, the Liberation Pavilion, and how it began from a very small, tiny idea and and blew up into the a larger D-Day Museum and then obviously going on to the World War II Museum. So it was a it's a photographic essay, I guess, and there's a, a thin uh, film of a, of a historical narrative to go along with it. But the larger manuscript, which I'm just now finishing on the museum history, uh, is called An Unlikely Story. Uh, and it, a couple of history professors starting a National World War II Museum. It's now a $450 million Smithsonian-style institution right here in New Orleans and mm-hmm. uh, and in a backyard over Drake. So it is kind of an unlikely story. And so I'm, I'm, I'm documenting that whole story since I'm the only one alive who knows it from beginning to the current ending, at least the ending for me. Maybe have a, a book or two left in me. I don't know, but uh, I'm not going to write any more on deadline. I mean, that's been. <laughs> I started off just saying next three years I'll do four years. I'll do one book after I step down, and instead it's been three plus helping my successor uh, as an advisor to the exhibits in the last uh, wonderful, magnificent uh, Liberation Pavilion. Everybody should come see that if you haven't. It's really quite stunning, and uh, people will love it. Quite stunning and and quite moving. Yes, moving as well. And uh, at least people with the idea that uh, despite our victory, that there are threats to freedom and and democracy uh, everywhere. And uh, our ideals and democracy are on very fragile footing, always have been, but ever more so today. There are dangers lurking there in that pavilion (laughs) that people will uh, confront and, and remember they've forgotten about them. Uh, perhaps. Professor Nick Mueller, one of the founders of the National World War II Museum and now a champion of culture. Thank you, sir, very much for your time and your work. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you, UNO, also. None of this would have happened without the University of New Orleans. So uh, this is uh, all the fountainhead for everything that I've accomplished in my life and career. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. There are over 70 parades on the streets of Metro New Orleans during Carnival. In Orleans Parish alone, over 40, starting with the crew of Chewbacca's. I've always been impressed by what these crews do, the marching clubs or full parades. But beyond that, there's the unspoken cost of putting on what some have called the greatest free show on earth. Just how much is spent and how much has contributed to the New Orleans economy may surprise you. Joining us to give us a look at the economic impact and fiscal benefit of New Orleans 2023 Mardi Gras is the author of that report, professor of economics at Tulane University, Tony Weiss. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. 
Before we get into the particulars of what you found, were you surprised at any point with, oh, for example, the the final price tag, uh, what the carnival season contributes to the economy? I guess I was I was very pleased. You know, I have done this report um, three times previously. the The last one was in 2014. And the numbers were not nearly this big in terms of the um, total economic impact, but also my data collection was significantly better this year than it had been in the past. I found that the crews and the crew members really stepped up to the plate and helped me gather the data that I needed to gather. And because of that, I was able to get a much more accurate picture of what Mardi Gras contributes to the New Orleans economy. That makes it pretty tough to do a study like this when you're dependent upon the members and the crews themselves to respond. Well, I mean, I think in any kind of economic impact, right, it's not just the easy to measure kind of benefits, but it is the boots on the ground. And even here in this study, I think there's a lot of missing data in terms of the citizens who don't participate in crews, who who are still spending a lot of money on Mardi Gras through hosting people and the sidewalk barbecues and the decorating their houses and costuming when they go downtown. And so, you know, the only way to get that information is just to ask. So what's the big figure, the contribution to the city's gross domestic product? It is close to $900 million, which represents just over 3% of the total GDP for New Orleans. And that comes from the local citizens and it comes from from visitors coming into the city and spending. And it's not just that those two weeks or 10 days that people think of as the Mardi Gras season, or if you think from King's Day to Mardi Gras, but it's all year long, right? The crews and their members are preparing. So from the moment that Mardi Gras ends, so Ash Wednesday to Fat Tuesday, there is spending that we can associate with Mardi Gras. Mm -hmm. And you also have to think about the tourists, right? I mean, if you, I was just the other day, I was on the streetcar, I take the streetcar back and forth to campus and there were some tourists wearing Mardi Gras beads. Mm -hmm. That's Mardi Gras. People come into town, even if it's not during Mardi Gras, but it is because of Mardi Gras often that they are lured to this community. In terms of Mardi Gras itself, who foots the bill for it? Who's putting up the bulk of that money? I think everybody, right? I mean, I, as I said, I think it's the the members of the crews and the crews themselves and the visitors that come into town. And I, we can't forget what the local government and our taxes are contributing. Mm-hmm. And this past year, they spent close to $10 million making sure that Mardi Gras was safe and that people ha- were able to have a good time and stayed healthy along the parade route. And that's not an insignificant amount of money. Mm-hmm. But one thing that my study shows is that they get back close to $2.60 of tax revenues for every dollar that they spend. So Mardi Gras is indeed paying for itself for police protection, the extra officers, even those that come in from outside the area. 
Yep, absolutely. And, you know, one thing that pleased me is that this number that the city spends, that $10 million number, that is significantly more than I, than was in previous years. Now, part of that is a new accounting system that the city uses to more accurately track their spending. And a lot of that is an increase in wages for the city workers and the police officers. You know, I think that's a I think that's a positive when we're thinking about the safety of our citizens. We're speaking with Professor Tony Weiss, author of the latest Mardi Gras Economic Impact Study. Pro- Professor Weiss, how much of the city's gross domestic product does Mardi Gras represent? Just about over 3%, so 3.07% is what I've calculated of our local GDP. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about the greater metropolitan area, but really just within Orleans Parish. The city's the is not the only one that sees benefits. Does the state see a bump in tax revenues as a result of the celebration? They did. And my my accounting for that was really pretty limited. But if I think about just the tax revenues that are flowing to the state because of Mardi Gras within Orleans Parish, we're looking at about $14 million. Now, if you think about what happens across the state, right, in, in the, all the Mardi Gras celebrations throughout that number is going to go up significantly. And again, mm-hmm. the state does spend some money. It's limited. It's not like individual municipalities, but there is some expenditure on the part of the state. But again, they're getting a lot of tax revenues because of Mardi Gras. How does this compare to something like a, a Super Bowl or a Final Four where the city really goes out and, and tries to get these big events to come in in terms of economic impact? I mean, I don't know the exact numbers of, say, the Super Bowl. I heard something on the radio about $200 million. I I can't speak to the veracity of that number. But one of the things that's interesting about Mardi Gras is that when you have a big event like Super Bowl, all of the money, all of the economic impact is coming, for the most part, from the outside, everybody flowing into the city for that event. And that's important. And that's why we want these big events. But Mardi Gras, is that money is coming largely from within. It's the locals that make Mardi Gras what Mardi Gras is. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, fourth year that you've done this study? It is. I started in 2009, so 2009, 2011, 2014, and then this year. I do know that if I had the opportunity to do this study again, I'd really like to invest some resources interviewing people along the parade route. Mm-hmm. I had some students this year, and I was I was very fortunate to work with Vicki Mayer and the uh, professor in the communications at Tulane. And she, it was her service learning project for her students. And I had a few students along the parade route take, doing some interviews. You know, are you local? Where did you come from? How far away did you travel? How long are you staying? How big is your party? But because it was the students and there weren't that many of them, that data was more anecdotal. It wasn't, I couldn't use it to do some hard calculations, but I think that's a real area of study that needs to be done to better understand who's in town Mm -hmm. and how much money they're spending. Professor Tony Weiss, professor of economics at Tulane University and author of The Economic Impact and Net Fiscal Benefit of New Orleans 2023 Mardi Gras season report. Thank you for your time, Professor. Thank you, Bob.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, the Times-Picayune, the Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace. CEO and President Emeritus of the National World War II Museum, Nick Mueller. And Professor of Economics at Tulane University, Tony Weiss. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Procell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at Rouse's.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.